0: Uh, I'm very, very grateful to be given the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Mike, for um, putting it on my radar, and, and I can't even remember who all to thank for giving me this opportunity, but I'm, I'm very blessed to do it. So, uh, welcome to uh, the meeting of the Rotary Club. I'm actually, I, I should probably be a bit more embarrassed to admit that I don't actually know what a Rotary Club is, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Uh, Reverend Dr. John Barr did a great job yesterday, beginning our journey deeper and deeper into this parable, this saying, uh, this passage of John 15, I am the true vine, his talk on the true vine, he centered on a question, what are you abiding in? What are you abiding in? I I often like to begin talks with questions as well, so I'm going to offer one as well that maybe we can just take and keep in our minds as we go through. Um, What kind of fruit is your life producing? What kind of fruit is your life producing? And then uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, maybe a better question might be, what's the next fruit you want to see born? So I mean, take, take either option and just think about that for the rest of our time together. Either what kind of fruit is your life bearing or what is the next fruit you would like to see born in your life? So as we begin, um, let's just have that in mind. I'm the vine, you are the branches. This is a talk on bearing fruit. A bit ironic. I love so much about, I I love the rain, I love this place, so many of these people, I love that song, I hate fruit. (laughs) My parents don't know what went wrong with me somewhere along, I really, I, I like avocados, which is a cheat, and that is it. So it's a bit ironic I'm doing this talk. I'm the vine, you are the branches, bearing fruit. That's me. And this is where I'd like to start just a, a bit of a meditation. This is uh, an icon called Christ the True Vine. Not quite sure um, who drew it. They think um, there's a an Angelos Anatacos, kind of a school of iconography. And Andreas Ristos was under him in some capacity. And they think he might have done this in the second half of the 15th century in Crete. You see on either side of Christ's head, there's stylized, curving branches. And you see on either side, to Jesus' immediate right or left, uh, the Virgin Mary and St. John the Baptist, in what's called the diasis position, the Greek word for prayer or supplication. This is a, a common kind of way for them to be depicted. That is, as Christ is enthroned in heaven, St. John the Baptist and the Blessed Virgin Mary are interceding for the world in front of him and there are twelve the twelve minus one plus Paul surrounding him this is often an image in Byzantine art and later in Eastern Orthodoxy generally a traditional icon pred- uh, presenting Christ in majesty or Christ Pontocrator, uh, the, the ruler of all things enthroned usually carrying a book as he is here and then flanked by the Virgin Mary, and St. John the Baptist, and usually sometimes other saints and angels. They are interceding for us, you might say, the saints. And then Jesus, with two hands pronounced in blessing, and is holding a book. The source of this icon in particular is obviously John 15, from which a quote is inscribed in the gospel book. The book that Jesus is holding right there has a quote from John 15. I wish I could tell what it is, but I don't know. It just comes from this passage of John 15. I think as we get into this passage deeper and deeper, John 15, and this idea of remaining in Christ, abiding in the true vine, bearing fruit, I think for the specific task of understanding the bearing fruit aspect of this, we are well served to think about fruit in Scripture's grand story. I think we'll have a much better understanding of John 15 and bearing fruit if we set it into its much larger, uh, almost all biblical context. In a way, we can talk about the whole story of Scripture as a story of God, humans, and fruit. So much the worse for me. I know they may sound a bit odd, but as we track with the larger narrative of the whole Bible from beginning to end, or at least from the beginning to where Jesus picks up our story, I I hope it becomes clear where we're going. So let's begin uh, in the beginning. This is Jan Bruegel, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, 1615 from Brussels, I believe. And I find it very interesting that this painting, um, Adam and Eve are, notice... Off doing their own thing. They're kind of off in the corner. I mean, it's hard to see them. It's hard to pick them up. They are, I don't know if you can see any of this laser pointer. I'm trying. There. I don't know if that's a commentary on the fact that they are just naked and unashamed and going about their life. Or the fact that they are going to soon disregard their role as caretakers. But well, we first meet this idea, this concept of fruit in the garden. Its origins are, unsurprisingly, in Genesis. Genesis 1:11 through 13, God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. The concept comes up again just a few days later. Genesis 1, 21 to 23, So God created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. The idea of fruitfulness comes up yet again in the creation of humanity. A famous passage for sure, John, or excuse me, Genesis one twenty-six. and God said, "Let us make man or humanity better translated in our image after our likeness." The word for fruit, pre in Hebrew, and the word for this command to be fruitful is para. It comes from the same Hebrew root, uh, pe rohe, I suppose. The text of Genesis also seems to suggest that both the fruit and the animals, particularly humans, have natural ability to produce what they are being called to produce. The word for the seed of a fruit is the same Hebrew word for offspring or descendants throughout Genesis. And so when it's talking about human seed, it's talking about human offspring. Kind of like the seed of the fruit is the offspring of the fruit and produces more. So human seed, the offspring of humanity, is supposed to generate itself, perpetuate itself. So fruit as kind of a literal thing, as a part of God's good creation, and it'll be better in the new heavens and new earth, and I might actually enjoy it. But even more than that, in Genesis, it becomes a, a profound metaphor for what humans are designed to do. They are designed to be fruitful, to produce, and primarily to produce image bearers that reflect the glory of God to the world, and the glory of the world back to God. That is our task. This is, this is a priestly idea. Humans are created to be priests in the garden, to reflect the glory of God back and forth to each other, to creation and back to God himself. And part of the original design of humanity is so that they would make more humans, more image bearers, and in so doing, they would be fruitful. That's the idea of fruitfulness. But we know how the story goes, don't we? Because a few chapters in, they are derelict of their duty, and we encounter corruption. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happens in the fall? Bad fruit corrupts the world. That's what happens in the fall and so it is to this day. Humanity no longer reflects the glory of God but rather takes glory for itself and is now caught in continually reflecting its glory back to itself and continually trying to capture more and more glory for itself. The human heart is now bent inward on its own glory. That famous St. Augustine line, in curvatus in se, curved inward on itself. Luther later expanding on that in his lectures on Romans. So uh, humanity originally was pointed outward and upward towards God, trying to, supposed to reflect the glory of God from and to creation and back to him and to each other. But in the fall, through the eating of bad fruit, we are corrupted, turned in on ourselves. Thankfully, God does not leave us in this state of corruption. He initiates his redemption plan with Abraham, whose family eventually becomes Israel. After freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus and their rebellion afterwards, which leads to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the next generation of Israelites stands ready to finally inherit the promised land. And Deuteronomy is a series of sermons Uh, Moses' last will and testament, if you will, to the next generation of the children of Israel. Not his generation, because he's barred from the promised land. But he's preaching to the next, those that will inherit the promised land. And this is where we pick up our story of fruitfulness. We'll see that the metaphor of fruit and fruitfulness kind of becomes a bit expanded. So Deuteronomy 7, Israel's faithfulness and fruitfulness. Moses preaches, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep you with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you and will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds. And the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give to you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, and there shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. That's towards the beginning of Deuteronomy. He says almost the exact same thing at the end. Deuteronomy 28 If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be of the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle. and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Notice all the blessings of faithfulness and fruitfulness are now bound up together. It all comes and goes together. But notice the conditional in here. If you are faithful, you will be fruitful. This is the classic way that the law speaks. If you are obedient, if you are faithful to the covenant, you will enjoy the blessings. The title of this section in the ESV Bible is, Blessings for Obedience. And the very next section is, Curses for Disobedience. It's no surprise then that Israel as a nation begins to think about the ideal human life in terms of fruitfulness. In terms of being fruitful. Psalm 1. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Getting ahead of myself here, there we go. So this is a piece of what you might call Israelite theological anthropology. I mean, thinking about what it means to be human in terms of Israel and its scriptures. What what does the good human life look like? What does the ideal human look like? It looks like this. Someone who delights, you could say, uh, abides, remains, dwells. In God's word, day and night, doing this makes him a fruitful tree, bearing fruit, that you might say, lasts. Fruitfulness then becomes one of the ways that scripture thinks about, talks about, a human life. And being able to judge whether or not a human's on the right track or, or not, and they're living a productive good life or not. And if, if, if that is true, if Israel starts to pick this up in their thinking, and in their literature, and probably in their art, then it's not surprising that they start to use the image of a vine for their own nation. See, Israel, as God's people, are supposed to be the reconstituted Adam, right? I mean, every every time you see the next big character in the story of the Old Testament, he's the next Adam, I mean, Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel and they were supposed to be the next ones, right? And Cain turned out to be even worse than his father. And then Seth, Seth. I mean, So um, Eve actually says when she gives birth to Cain, I have an Adam. I have a man. That's why translations will say a man child. We don't don't know what she's saying, right? She's saying, here's the next one. Here's here's Adam. Finally, we get to, to try this thing over again. And then Cain fails. And Seth. And Abraham is good, not great. Noah, the same way, right? So every time we meet a major person in the story of Scripture, this idea of Adam and our original intent and design is always lurking in the background, and that eventually becomes corporately applied to the whole nation of Israel. So there's supposed to be this light, this priestly nation, right? The same idea that that Adam had this task in the garden, to reflect glory back and forth and to bring humanity and the rest of humanity that they would generate and to bring all of creation into continued harmony with God, Israel is supposed to be that little kind of oasis in the world that is the next Eden. So it's not surprising that they start thinking of themselves as a vine. But like Adam and Eve, we know that Israel bring, brings forth corrupt fruit. Israel as false vine. One of the more common indictments of the prophets on Israel. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Grapes are fruit. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste Following in the footsteps of their forefather Adam, Israel produces corrupt fruit. Isaiah's language, wild grapes, right? We're looking for good grapes, grapes we can make wine with, and we can't make wine with this stuff, says God. And thus, the punishment predicted in the law, in the rest of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, is going to come, is impending on Israel. I will make it a waste, God says, Notice this imagery again, right? That God is clearing out the land and planting a vine. The first thing God planted was a garden. Genesis 2, he planted a garden in the east. And it was Eden, and that's where he put humanity. And so notice how this imagery is being caught up in how Israel is being talked about. That God, in the Exodus, clears out a new space, a new patch of earth, for another Eden. And he plants the vine in there. You could say that Adam and Eve were planted in Eden. And he plants them in there and he looks for them to do what Adam failed to do and they don't. Again, Jeremiah. Long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. This is Exodus language. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you have bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, wholly of pure seed. How then have you turned deranged, degenerate, and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. Israel is again called a vine, identified as a failure, I mean in, in some of the starkest terms we could think of. Scripture sometimes is not nice at all. But notice, notice this proclamation. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you try, you cannot cleanse yourself. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap. Was that Macbeth quote? How much water do I need? You can't do it. Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given over to to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it, and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less, when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less, when it is charred. Thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forests. Again, this is imagery for Israel, His people. Which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them, though they escape from the fire, then the fire shall consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord. It just came to me. Notice, Notice God's concern for His creation here. The land became desolate. The bad fruit that Israel is producing in their lives not just corrupts their society or their individual hearts, but it corrupts the very land on which they live. The land is actually talked about in the prophets as being given rest from all of the injustice and the bloodshed and the sin that Israel had perpetuated upon it. When God judges, when He removes evil, He does so out of love and care for His good creation. More of a sidebar than anything else. Israel is yet again called a vine. But this time the metaphor changes a bit. It's a useless vine, good only to be fuel for a fire. So so we've heard from uh, the three major prophets of Old Testament history. But the most significant Old Testament example of this idea of Israel as a vine, as bearing corrupt bad fruit, comes from a rather interesting source. It's not a prophet, but it's a psalm. It's a psalm that seems to have been written after the judgment that God had promised was coming actually came. The last one, I promise, Psalm 80. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry through people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears, giving them tears in full measure to drink. You make us an object of contention among our neighbors, our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought out a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you plucked down or broken down its walls? so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. <clears throat> Notice again the common themes. Israel is a vine that is planted in the land after the exodus. But it comes to experience judgment rather than blessing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why? Why? The psalm doesn't address it explicitly, but any Israelite who's reading this, who's experienced the judgment of the exile, knows exactly why. They rebelled, refused to repent, sinned all the more. This can kind of leave us, I think, feeling a bit dour, hopeless. Where would an Israelite turn for hope in the midst of such a major failure and a terrible judgment, this is where the ending of the psalm is so fascinating. Is that perhaps a cool drink of water for me? Yes. Thank you. Hang on, Eden's coming to refresh me. Come <laughs> That's a movie reference of some nature, but I don't know which one it is. <laughs> mm. Much better. <clears throat> Where does Israel turn for hope? Uh, the, the prophets' indictments are astounding. And this, this psalm is it's almost complaining, right? And so how does this psalm end it's so interesting it ends with hope for a true vine a son of man turn again O God of hosts look down from heaven and see have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted And for the son of man whom you made so strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made so strong for yourself. Then we shall turn back, not turn back from you. And we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The psalm ends for a cry for revival. But it transfers the imagery of this vine from corporate Israel onto a single figure. The son of man. The man of your right hand. Does that sound at all familiar? Jesus' favorite phrase to use of himself, his favorite title, is son of man. And so here we get Jesus, the true vine. Jesus, the ideally fruitful human life. Jesus, the true fruit giver. It's into this very story. It's into this story, this legacy of what you might call false vines, corrupt, fruit-bearing vines, that Jesus comes in and proclaims, I am the true vine. I want to do something a bit different. If you would indulge me, close your eyes. I want you to think of maybe a legacy of corrupt fruit in your family tree. Maybe that you're trying to break. Or I want you to think of an area in your life where corrupt fruit is being brought forth and you desperately want the pruning of God. Or I want you to think of that place in your life that is bringing forth good fruit and you desperately want God to increase and confirm it. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away Jesus is the only source of true life. The only source of real spiritual life. The only possible way that you and I are going to live a life worth living, worth worth producing, worth giving away. The only way that branches can produce fruit to abide in the vine. So bearing fruit we finally get... To our point, bearing fruit in the true vine. I'll address just briefly kind of the, the aspects that John picks up on that Jesus is talking about when he mentions the fruit. He gives us, in on one hand, the motivation. Only fruitful branches remain in the vine. John fifteen two. every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I'll talk about this more in just... A few minutes. But notice that language of pruning. It's for the fruitful vines. It's for the ones that are abiding in Christ. That trouble and hardship come. That's what most commentators think the pruning is. Some kind of unpleasantness that God allows into our lives. To draw us into deeper closer relationship and dependence on him. But it is the fruitful vines that experience this. Zero discipline from the Lord is not a good thing. In other words. Jesus speaks a bit to the process. That is, we bear fruit by nurturing and sustaining a relationship with Jesus. This is verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus gives us the purpose of all of this. The ultimate purpose of bearing fruit, of living our lives, is ultimately for the glory of God. John 15, 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All of this, everything the fruitful life does, is directed towards, aimed towards, going towards the glory of God. But what exactly is the fruit? One burning question we might have, and here I'll lean on a man much smarter than myself, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John. The branch's purpose, he says, is to bear much fruit, but the next verses show that this fruit is the consequence of prayer in Jesus' name and is to the Father's glory. This suggests that the fruit in the vine imagery represents everything that is produced, the product of an effective prayer life in Jesus' name. Including, and these are features listed in this passage itself. Obedience to Jesus' commands. It looks like obedience. Experience of Jesus' joy like earlier in John, his peace. It looks like a life that listens to his voice and experiences his joy and his peace. It looks like love for one another. Something that this group, I don't think, has any problem with. And it's... Looks like witness to the world. This fruit is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine, driven by faith, embracing all of the believer's life and the product of his witness. I want to have a bit of time. I want to go to another quote from Carson that I don't have on my slides, but it's picking up on that last bit of what the fruit looks like. That idea of part of what the fruit looks like is witness to the world. So this is jumping down in the passage to verse 16 that we did not read, but it ends with the same idea of going out into the world to bear fruit. And of verse 16, Carson says this, quote, With these references to fruit and to its enduring quality, the verb for the enduring fruit is the same word minnow, remaining, abiding fruit. It becomes clear that these closing allusions to divine imagery ensure that however comprehensive the nature of the fruit that Christians bear, the focus on evangelism and mission is truly central. As in John's day, so now. This is simultaneously a mandate to Christ's followers and a summons to those who do not yet know him. That is why the union of love that joins believers with Jesus can never become a comfortable, exclusivistic huddle that only they can share. The union of love that joins believers with Jesus can never become a comfortable, exclusivistic huddle that only they can share. Doubtless it is a unique union, an extension of the union of the Godhead, but by its very nature it is a union, an intimacy, which by the necessity of its own constitution seeks to bring others into its orb. Pick up the parallels from Genesis 1. What are humans supposed to do? Make more. What are Christians supposed to do? Make more. Evangelize. Go out. Bring more into this relationship of harmony and love and bring back into the order of the universe. It's always oriented outwards toward the mission of God to people that don't yet know him so that they can be brought in and they can do the same thing. It seeks, by the necessity of its own constitution, to bring others into its orb. I have to say that because it's Carson's word. Orbit, or, you know, inside the circle. Another potential possibility. This is kind of an anticipated extension, potentially. I don't have time to go into it. Maybe Mike will pick up on the fruit of the Spirit when he talks about the Helper. But I think there's a a good chance that Jesus knows what Paul is going to say and he's thinking about this idea of fruit in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness self-control against such things, there is no law, he says. This idea that there, there's an internal and an external aspect to this whole fruit idea and what it looks like in real life, and sometimes it looks like going out into the world, and sometimes it looks like internal character traits that God grows in us slowly by abiding in Christ and being filled with the Spirit. There's a lot more we could go into on that, but I won't. Is there a secret... what is the secret to bearing fruit if there is such a thing? For that, we have to return to our image. Christ, the true vine. Second half of the 16th century, I think, remember? 15th century, excuse me, 1400s. In trying to kind of trace the influence of, so basically the question, how do we get this? How how do we get this? painting. How did we get this depiction of Jesus? One possibility is that one of the influences on this image was first this image. This is a 12th century apse. It's a mosaic in San Clemente in Rome. You can still go see it. Notice a lot of similarities. Vines going out the virgin mary and john the baptist on either side but notice where jesus is he's on the cross the cross is the the cross is what gives us life this is where i think um, the one background passage that i held out on you is helpful. This might be, I think, the, the interpretive key to the whole passage of John 15. When Jesus says these words in John 12, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We are not the ultimate cause of the fruit we bear. We don't produce fruit by our own efforts, but by looking outward to the gospel, to the cross, to the resurrection of Jesus. We dwell on the gospel, on the goodness of the God of the gospel. Everything necessary for us to do to be fruitful humans has been done for us first. It's only when we realize that and accept it and believe it and take all of Jesus into ourselves saying, I claim nothing as my own, nothing that I can do, no matter how much lie I use or soap I use. I cannot cleanse my own sin. I cannot break this legacy of a corrupt vine. I cannot do this, period. It's until we get to that point and we turn to Jesus and say, you must do this. I cannot. That is when we begin to bear real fruit. When the cross itself is the thing that empowers us. When the resurrection of Jesus is the life that we receive as a gift. And then and only then do we live it out. See, there's a temptation when we come to John 15 to take uh, what Roman Catholics would tell Protestants is the inward turn. This is a common critique of the Protestant Reformation. That in the Reformation, the turn outward to God in the church, right? Looking at the Eucharist, looking at the priest, looking at the fill in the blank becomes an inward turn towards faith and towards my own works and towards my security of salvation. But the solution is not turning inward to the fruit. Scrupulously scrutinizing ourselves and asking, is my, is my fruit fruitful enough? Am I good enough? Have I done enough? That's not the solution. That's not how we bear fruit. It is looking outward to the gospel and saying, Jesus has borne the fruit that I need already. He has lived the life that I need already. He has paid the debt for my sin already. And then and only then can I live a fruitful life. We dare not take John 15 and internalize it to the point that we are just racked with guilt as to how much fruit we have or don't have. We take John 15 in the context of what Jesus says here about himself. That he, his death, his resurrection bears the fruit we need. We receive that and then fruit comes. Hmm. A few questions as we go on. 48 minutes. Babe, where are you? She asked me if I could get this under 45. I could not. (laughs) So some discussion questions for you as you go into small groups. What is the connection between what we are abiding in and the fruit that our lives are producing? And you can personalize these questions as much as you like. Where in your life are you seeing good fruit? How about Bad fruit, corrupt fruit, rotten fruit. And what do you think God might be calling you to do in light of that? And then finally, what distracts us? What distracts you, me, from the gospel remaining centered on it? And what does God use in your life, in our lives, to re-center us? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that all the work necessary for us to do has been done that we can enter into a fruitful life, a productive human life, a human life that is filled with joy and peace and love and all the good things you promise us simply by receiving Jesus and his work on our behalf and then filled with your Holy Spirit, living to be conformed to his image for the Father's glory. Send us out to do just that in Jesus' name. Amen.